Welcome to episode one of the practicality of virtual reality. And today we're going to dig into VR attractions in the location-based entertainment industry. And I have the honor of a very esteemed panel of guests starting out. And we'll go let you guys all do a, a brief introduction of who you are and, and what you do. And I'll start in the top left of the screen. I'm Jim Bennington. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. And who the heck are you? Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate being here today. I'm Jim Bennington. I'm with Lucky Strike Entertainment. I've been an operator in the amusements industry now coming up on 25 years. I've had the privilege of working directly for a lot of what I would consider the big box operators in North America, the people who are defining the marquee names out there and creating this airspace for the rest of them to grow up into. So that's who I am. That's what I'm here to do, and I appreciate you inviting me over. Thank you. Thanks for joining, Jim. And you're a big, you know, you've been a big proponent of the VR industry. I'm interested to hear your perspective on where we are. Ben Davenport, who the heck are you? Well, again, uh, it's uh, it's good to see you and everybody else here, and uh, it's exciting to be, uh, you know, part of the panel and uh, just to have a group of industry veterans who've all touched VR in some way and. It's going to be interesting to hear what everybody's perspective is. But I'm, I'm the CEO of VRSnal, and we're a company that makes fully automated VR solutions for the LBVR space. And we've been doing this for quite a few years, and we have about 700 units in 10 countries, and they're all, they all run without an attendant. And so we've been doing that for quite some time. We're in all the Dave and & Buster's and main events. And so been through it all and been drug around a bit and uh, you know, they don't call it the bleeding edge for nothing. So it's been fun. Yeah, I'm sure we'll touch on labor and attendance um, during this webinar. George Smith, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm uh, president, CEO and founder of Family Entertainment Group. We operate in or own over 60 locations in 24 states as, as we found out today and growing. We've been, uh, I think, early adopters of VR in various forms and we're still playing with it. I think there's there's life to it. We aren't quite sure what we're going to be when we grow up, but we're, we're working on it. That's it. And it's great to see a bunch of friends on the screen. Yeah, cool. Thanks. And you are truly one of the earliest adopters from my perspective, and you dove into the deep end. And so looking forward to getting your perspective on that. And Armando, um, last but certainly not least, tell us about you and CreativeWorks. Yeah, my name is Armando Lanuti. I'm the president and uh, one of the owners here at CreativeWorks. Um, we got our start in the industry overall, you know, 25 plus years ago in, in laser tag. And we've been nerds ever since, which is, you know, a lot of fun. VR has just been something that we've really enjoyed as a personal device and attraction that we've used in the home. And, you know, several years ago, brought a couple of VR products, you know, with some partners to the to the space. And we just, we love it. It just allows you to do things. We, we do a lot of fun themed projects out in the real world, so to speak. One of the fun parts of VR is that we don't have to obey things like the laws of physics with, you know, the experience that you get to have inside the game. And as a, as a longtime gamer, you know, that's just something that's unique beyond just the level of immersion and things that you can do. And really, really happy to be here. And, and we've got like six different VR products right now that we offer. And so we've got a, a breadth of experience to bring, you know, hopefully to, to help others engage in the marketplace. Yeah. I love the way you characterized creative works recently in a conversation we had at IAPA last year, Armando, as kind of an incubator, you know, helping these new companies, which we see a lot of coming into the industry, but they don't have any understanding of the needs of the, of the amusement operator. 
And so I love the fact that you're helping these companies find their footing in the marketplace and giving breath to some of the innovative products that just don't yet have market fit. And maybe, you know, while we're on that subject, let's just start with that. Like, what are some of the key things that you think most early solution providers that come into the industry, what are like the top three things they don't understand that they need to be able to do to make VR market fit for LBE? I mean, I think... One of the big pieces that gets missed sometimes is that the people that are designing these games and these experiences, whether they come to us or others, they're brilliant. They're very creative. Some of them are, are more of an engineering mindset versus a artistic mindset, but they are absolutely brilliant. But they've never had to understand what it means to deal with the organized chaos of thousands of people in a venue on a Saturday afternoon, hundreds of birthday parties through a weekend, the idea of throughput, touch points, getting people in and out, and the fact that they almost have a little bit of a bias because they're used to VR because it's the world, it's what they experience. And I'm sure Jim and George on the operator side will share some of that you know, mindset that even though we've all been doing VR for years now, I would still hazard a guess up to 80% of the guests that walk in may not have done it yet. Or even if they have their VR experience is minuscule in comparison to a developer. And I think making sure that they're looking thing, looking at things with fresh eyes and through that operator's eyes, I think is one of the most, most important pieces. And maybe that's one of the things that's made us a unique incubator so to speak, in some of these scenarios is that my background was in operations. I'm not perfect. I don't do it every day like George and Jim do these days. But that perspective of having eight years of dealing with that organized chaos, dealing with the party moms, dealing with the kids, dealing with the adults of, of different age groups gave us a different perspective where we simply asked some of the questions of, if I were to put this in my venue, what would I want it to do? What would I not want it to do? What do I not want to deal with on a Saturday afternoon? But, you know, I think the next step would be maybe asking George or Jim, what are some of those pieces that, that they see, you know, that arrive in one of their centers? Maybe it looks really good. Maybe it plays really good, but maybe there's like an intuition miss or what that the average player doesn't pick up on it. Like, what are some of the things that they maybe see? Yeah, George, you want to take that? Well, I think uh, you phrased that really well. I'm going through in my mind the last IAPA show of seeing all the VR people that are there. And I just think about human nature of if you are selling VR and you're in a booth for three days and you're running through lots of people there, you begin to think that the whole universe must know how to put on a headset and adjust it and do all the other things that are there. And it just ain't so. And we opened up a new facility at IAPA time that has significant VR. And we bought a couple of things from Armando and are testing some things that are there. And what we found out when we did last week, we had this open house with a bunch of people from the area, educators, resort people, things like that coming in to test it, adults, most of whom are not familiar with VR and everything. They had such a good time. Of course, they were getting free booze, so that helped everything. <laughs> but the real problem that they had was they had an experience. I saw a quote, and I think it probably overstates it, that less than 5% of North Americans have touched or played VR. I think that's probably on the high side. Most mm. people have not done it. They may have heard about it, but they don't know what it is. They're not familiar with it. It's clunky. Trying to explain what it is is more difficult. It's like playing a game. 
usually it's much easier to just start playing the game and you'll figure it out, the rules as you go along. But getting people to start it in the first place has been the biggest issue that we've had, save for the youngest or the nerdiest of people. Jim, what's your observation? I know you've been experimenting with new stuff out there. What's been your observation on the operational needs of these systems and where the challenges are that you'd like to see solution providers and manufacturers be more focused to bring things that are operator ready? Sure. I I think the overall nature of the beast is what's slowing its velocity down, right? And and when I say that, George George nailed it. He took my best answer. Intuition. (laughs) one quarter at a time. So if you just take back to the roots of the arcade, what made the arcade so simple? All I had to do was coin drop and touch a console. And there's an input device, whether it's a static image, a set of rules, or something visual that's drawing me in. And then there's going to be an input controller. So the intuitiveness of an arcade from the 80s was drop a quarter, grab a joystick, move north, south, east, west, eat all the pellets and you could see the objective. You could be a voyeur of the experience and instantly know how to do that. The thing that tripped me up and you're right, I spent a solid week installing two different modern systems represented by both brands on here and did probably 250 personal exit interviews. Stood there from open to close for four days straight. Hey, look like you, you were excited about that when you ran up to it. Did you have the same excitement when you were done playing? No, I I, I would have liked to known to put the head, the headset was the thing. I'm, I, I can't, you know, they can't find their ergonomic balance fast enough to keep the game intuitive, to take their money at the same pace as their excitement impulse, right? And once you get into that dopamine rhythm, it's easy to monetize that. VR makes it a little difficult to step in and drop a coin and be immersed. Some units. I think it comes down to the the output display and the input display. And the way that you put that in someone's hands, how ergonomically correct do they have to be to engage in your game just after they drop a quarter? Take dollar bills and card swipes out of it. One quarter at a time. It's got to be intuitive at 25 cents. And I think that goes like, there's a couple of things we want to talk about today. That, that's, you know, there's unattended and attended systems, right? And unattended systems may making itself serve. I know, Ben, I'm going to give this to you because you spent five or six, seven years now iterating on how to build better unattended attractions. And then I want to turn to the attended stuff and we can talk to some of the challenges, George, because I know you've recently kind of paired your solution set within your operation and been a lot more, it seems, intentional about which attended things you're running. And so Ben, kind of wrap up the unattended piece and talk about some of the challenges that you've seen and the progress you're making and what we still have to figure out to make unattended as accessible as Jim thinks it needs to be. And then we can kind of talk a little bit about the attended stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I mean, Jim and George, uh, of course, are spot on. And George has walked through it with us. He got some of our very first attempts at taking this thing that started out where you needed an attendant every single time. And, you know, we came in and this has really got to be automated because that was what we were hearing from the operators. It's just too much manpower, too much brain damage. And we're currently serving up about a million fully automated plays per month in VR. And about 50% of those players are under the age of 10. So Jim's right. It's just got to be simplified to the point where people who've never touched VR can get in and get out. And, um, you know, our latest product, this, the zombie link cabinet, that input device where it's just like where you we have the headset mounted directly to the rifle. So you can just pick it up, press it against your face. You know, you just swipe, you know, and pick it up, press it against your face, play, 
set it down, no straps, no adjusting. It's just, that's been the end result of, you know, like you said, five or six years of trying to walk through this with operators and listening to the, the pain points. It's like technology advances and we all want to advance with it, but the people don't advance. People, people are still running around, you know, drunk on a game floor or, you know, trying to take care of a bunch of little kids and people are people. And so we're the ones that have to adapt and VR arsenals kind of find itself in the position where HTC is making some great products, powerful products, and that technology is super mature to display the images, but then how to harden those products for the location-based entertainment industry where you got kids wanting to hang on them as swings and, and you know how to harden those things. And we've kind of been in the middle there and trying to take this great technology and adapt it for the often difficult environment uh, that an LBE you know, space represents. And it's been a fun process where there's been a lot of push and pull and being like, well, we can do this. Well, can you do this? And back and forth. And we've kind of arrived at this place where we've, we've kept simplifying and simplifying and simplifying, getting it down to where we now have no moving parts. And we now have a, you know, a cable that has a two-year warranty and, you know, we don't have an HDMI cable that breaks every six weeks and getting rid of that, having to adjust the headset as far as you can. Some games require the headset. And so then you got to try to make it as simple as possible, put the instructions inside the headset, couple those with audio instructions, and, and also put the instructions on screen. So if you've got a little kid and he's inside of another world for the first time and he's not paying any attention to what you're telling him, so but at least his mom can see it on screen and she comes up behind him and she tightens down. I think it's just kind of listening to the pain points and trying to do everything you can to remove those obstacles and keep refining so that people can get access to this great technology and remove that friction. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So before I go to you, George, I just want to, I want to go back to Armando for one second before we get into the attended versus unattended, because Armando, you've worked with many, you know, manufacturers or solution providers, developers, and I know you've got six different products in the market now. I'm surprised we're not seeing more attempts to harden the consumer electronics that eventually are making it into this these products in the market, whether like even if they're feeble attempts, like I'm not even seeing those like I'm seeing like just raw headsets being put into arcade games. And, and these systems are really designed either for consumer or prosumer markets, not industrial like abusive environments. What are we missing there as an industry? And why do you think we're not seeing more companies do that? I think it's started to become more prevalent. I think we have started to add, depending on the headset, for example, with any of our products that have the Vive Pro, you know, series family, any of those, we are using a metal plate on there uh, to be able to prevent the, the clamshell from getting pulled off, right? Because Sometimes people do have a great experience. They have a great time. They enjoy <laughs> themselves. And then instead of unscrewing themselves and pulling it off, they just grab it and rip, right? Yes. And that's where I'd say 75% of the breakage to the headset, for example, on that series in a commercial environment is that because they're just so excited. They want to smile. They want to talk about the great time that they just had, but they also want to get it off because they're warm. You know, their adrenaline was going. They're ready to get out. The game has ended. There's nothing for them to see, but they don't stop to take that moment because like even Ben mentioned at the beginning, they were just so excited getting into it. They barely remember that they even dialed it in and tightened it on like a ski mask, right? So then they go and they yank it off and they, and they breaks, right? We've, created devices to try and clamp that in. I know Ben has done the same in, in his systems as well. But part of it is the iteration cycle with which some headsets come out or when we're using 
For instance, we've got the Vibro series in a couple of our products. We've got the Focus 3 series in a couple of our products. We don't have that for the Focus 3 type stuff. Now, they don't have the same type of wear spots as the Vibe Pro series does, but over time you find what those pieces are and then you know we're, we're making modifications, but some people just don't take that extra time and care to figure that out, but you have to, right? Because like you said, it's at best a prosumer market. You know, even with the Focus 3, they've done some great, great moves with the, you know, replaceable, you know, magnetic covers for the face gaskets, for the batteries, the hot swaps, but it's, it's still susceptible to somebody dropping it. Right. And, you know, when it drops from six feet, what happens? It's going to take some of that. So you have to think of other ways to also cushion, like, Hey, make sure you're using carpet with padding in the areas where it could fall. And, And it harkens back to our experience with laser tag, right? Even in a vesting room, we'd say you don't have to worry about carpet with padding in a laser tag arena or in the briefing room. But in that vesting room where equipment's coming on and off, put a one inch pad underneath your carpet, right? So that if something drops, it's less likely to break and, and those kind of things because it's about cycling that equipment hundreds, if not thousands of times in a week. And that's just not something that they're designed for in, in the typical everyday use case have to learn to unmute faster. No, it's just one of those things. So, so some of the modifications you make, you can make to the headset, some of the modifications you have to make to the environment, right? Yeah, and it's a combination yeah. of both to make sure that you come out with a cohesive use case. But is that a reasonable, and I'm gonna kick this back to George and then Ben, is that a reasonable expectation for manufacturers to take is to you know, put products in the market where arcade games, you know, again, we're talking about arcade games, have historically just, it's been the manufacturer's responsibility to build something that's rugged and purpose built. And now are we putting too much responsibility on operators? And, you know, and there's, and again, there's different levels of operators with different amounts of resources and different years of experience and, and different distractions. Is it reasonable to put those expectations on an operator say, okay, well, you need to put padding under your carpet where you're going to put this arcade game. Like, I feel like like that's more of the, the supplier side needs to own that. And I'm just going to ask George and Jim what you think of that. You know, I, I think it's, it's a two-way street. We've come so far in a relatively short period of time. I think, you know, that's the same evolution. If you if you manufacture a game in Japan and you don't do testing in the United States, you're going to be really surprised when you move a Japanese piece to the American market. We're gorillas. We're going to do things that are a lot rougher and tougher than than other markets might do. But it's the biggest market still at the moment and represents wonderful. Even the Chinese manufactured stuff that's out there, which has been increasingly like everything else entering the marketplace, is slowly becoming more robust and more attuned to the environment that it's going in. But, you know, I I don't think the adoption of VR, it's going to be a couple of different tracks here. One is going to be financial, because if it's not financial, it's not going to go anyplace. And it's, it's approaching that in some ways. The other one, though, is experiential and the explanation of that experience in a broader base and more consistent way. And the problem by having so many different manufacturers, that's all great. And and Ben, I don't mean to, to say this too hurtfully, but there's got to be something else other than zombies that can be done with this multiverse that's out there. One of the things that was really good and that we survive upon right now, and believe me, I make our money off of so many zombie-related things. I'm not poo-pooing it. Understood. Understood. But the experience that could be there with VR might be better explained with something else. Engineering from 
zero latency we still use, even though it's many years old right now, because it's approachable for the younger crowd. I was watching Armando's new slime product today and the escape rooms and everything. And it occurred to me that part of the adoption issue that, that we're all facing here is it's got to be fun, but it's got to be very quick. Jim said it about the intuitiveness of it that's there. If everybody could become more consistent about how they're explaining what's going to go on, that would help. And number two is have a couple of things that are so easily explain what you get with VR that would be helpful as opposed to just swords and guns tackling people. You have so many possibilities out there. I think we're at the cusp of it, which is why I like it so much, whether it's SpongeBob or or whether it's lightsabers or whatever the case would be. Letting the imagination go is, is what VR really has in its pocketbook that hasn't been universally administrated yet. I think there's a real challenge there, George. I'll ask both of you guys is a you know percentage of revenue, you know, so for zero latency, which now you operate several of those, you know, I know what they say as far as number of percentage of plays for their zombie games versus the other games, you know, it skews heavily towards, for some reason, people like to shoot zombies. And even now the new HBO series based on the video game called The Last of Us, you know, like it's just blowing up as like the number one show on on HBO now. And so there's something about zombies that people like, and I'm going to take this from a developer standpoint, which is, you know, you spend six or seven figures developing experience and you know, it's kind of like Hollywood, like Hollywood now is putting all their money on these, you know, superhero movies because it's a proven model. And if you spend $200 million building an Avengers movie, you know, you're going to get the money out of it. But, you know, if you make the Fablemans from Steven Spielberg, you know, and you spend $10 million doing that, nobody shows up to watch it. And I think there's a, I think as an industry, there's a narrative of too many zombie games and I agree with it. But on the other side as a developer, I'm like, where, if we've got money to build one game, do we want to take a risk of building something like Engineerium, which is a great experience, but probably generates 5% of the total ticket sales on that platform. And I don't know how to fix that problem. Like you're making it a discrete one or the other choice. And I think zombies have their huge place for it. And I'm glad for it financially and everything else. But Squid Games is got enough attention because it was different enough from whatever else was out there, giving you sort of this apocalyptic uh, approach in the real world to it that's there. Maybe yeah. a bad example, but it's just having something else that can universally show what the universe of VR play is what I'm hoping for at some point. The SpongeBob stuff does that to a great extent. The Rabbids do it to a great extent. Kong does it to a great extent. But it's got to be so that I'm really coming down to forget the, the genre that you're going to. If people could start to get the narrative for how you do advertising for VR more consistently, instead of every manufacturer trying to come up with a different way to show what VR could do, it would be helpful, mm-hmm. I think. All right, Jim, you got anything to say about how to no, no, I don't have anything to say about that. <laughs> um, well, the the first thing I want to say, Bob, is next time, can I go before George? Uh, because I think we're so like-minded in what we see day-to-day in the arcade, right? I, I walk in and out of 100 games, I, I have to create diversity in the arcade. And that diversity starts to break down as categories, redemption, non-redemption, video, and then that video, is it a racer? Is it a shooter? Is it an experiential? Is it a recreation 
of a thrill. So think about where the development lies. Zombies are popular because it's probably one of the last fantasy things that you can't actually go out and do in the real world. Yet. And so in the gamification, <laughs> it's always been about what can I do in the game that I can't do in the real world? I can race a McLaren in the game. I've never seen a McLaren in real life until you see one. And then the game is not so titillating like I've been there, seen that. And that's the cancel culture, I think, that you have in a modern arcade that is not a 10-year-old and they're not a 21-year-old. They're in that sweet spot of I've got my own money on my watch, on my phone, or my parents' credit card. And so in our environment, we're measuring now not just the game category, the subcategory, the content of the game, but now what day part does this most appeal to? If I'm drawing 63% of my revenue when I know I'm 21 and older, am I a family entertainment center or an adult entertainment center? Mm. And so the content is going to drive that, the day part, the placement. Where do you face that experiential for your first impression for your guest? So you operate a bunch of VR, like, you know, in one location. Do you look at VR separately as its own product category when you're doing those evaluations or are you just looking at all the games and regardless whether it's a vr or a 2d screen you're looking at it from that perspective or maybe some combination of the two i need a quilt of experiences to occupy your space for an hour or two hours while you're waiting for a bowling lane so depending on the revenue center and the four walls you're competing with the game room is first going to be a wait time converter it may not be the source of the destination. I didn't come to play VR. I heard you had it. I'll try it, right? But so the game itself has to be approachable and intuitive so that it's a, on a Friday or Saturday night. You've seen our Facebook page, Bob. Our nightclub pops off and that nightclub is in the middle of the arcade. So when I'm not dancing or in my bottle service moment, I want to step out and have fun and I'm dressed to the nines. Am I going to put a headset on? Nope exclusionary just because of the impact to my personal look my my vibe and that translates from a 21 year old a 35 year old down to a nine year old i don't want to mess up my hair do i wear my glasses or not there are too many questions again on the intuitiveness and i went in i hadn't operated vr other than you know a rabbits in one location in 2019 that was the extent of our vr except for global vr right same headset, same type of experience, but all of the intuitiveness you need today from 1998. So th those problems still kind of exist in the stratosphere that we've got the most amazing visual device to take you outside of the flat world you live in and put you in to the middle of the fish tank. Like you can go swimming with the fishes and never get wet, but would you put your iPhone on the front of the game as the control device? You're doing so, it with a headset that's well, more than the iPhone. So we gotta we gotta get close to that. Well, I think you said something really important there, Jim. And and Bob, you commented on George having this earlier as well of you need a quilt of attractions, right? And experiences, so to speak. And so often people just like to say VR and they sometimes just lump it all into one category, or oftentimes it just gets lumped into an arcade category. But just like you can have other attractions that are anchor attractions. You can have attractions that are arcade style and you can have attractions that we call that are more mini attractions where 
they're above the level of a simple arcade game, but they're not the anchor. They're not the reason you went to a venue. And VR has now grown to an assortment of attractions that both of these operators have, for example, at their venues that fit in each of those different moments, right? You have the free roam anchor style of attraction, such as, you know, a zero latency, you know, a, a limitless, those kind of things. You have the, uh, the small arcade components that are, you know, started obviously with what Ben and his team really did with the Beat Sabers and have grown all the way to the new, you know, zombie games. You have the motion sims that are kind of a step up, but they're still auto attend like Rabbids who obviously crushed with that. And, and you've got Kong and SpongeBob, as George mentioned. And then you've got those more experientials that are kind of in that in-between. They take up like that 20 by 20, they're a mini attraction and there's an assortment of those out there. But that's no different than laser tag, right? Some people have an anchor laser tag that's a 40-player system, and some people have a 20-player laser tag that's a complementary, right? Bowling, you'd have 80-lane houses. Now you've got 8-lane, 12-lane, 16-lane boutique setups amongst, you know, a dozen other attractions. And I think that we're just starting to see VR start to proliferate in different price points, experiences, and sizes the same way that a lot of those other attractions have also evolved over the years. And it's trying to find based on your demographic, as Jim said, the mix for the age group that you're going for of both the VR and the non-VR attractions within your space. And I think that that's a viewpoint that more operators need to look at things from versus just saying it's only in this vertical or it's only in that vertical and realizing it can fit in a lot of different places based on what you're trying to do. Can I ping on that really quickly is if you think about VR as the quality, ultimate premium visual immersive experience that, that we've kind of culminated in the arcade industry where we went through tube TVs, we went through rear projection, we got to flat screen plasma and look where we've come. And now just from a visual input device, from a gamification standpoint, VR is an escalator ride to quality experiences. The problem with VR as a headset, as that visual take it in device that I'm having with, and I struggle with this bad, is that I'm standing on a broken escalator trying to figure out how to get to the next level. I could just take it off and walk myself. Why am I waiting for someone to turn on the escalator? And my, my meaning of that is I can just take that VR piece and go, this is not worth stressing out my technician who's afraid to take a day off because he's the only guy in the building who's an expert on a commercial grade product. I bought it. I got to operate it, but he can't go home because he he's like, man, I, this thing is so great. It earns when it's going, but when it's not, man, I got to flip the switch. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do that. And so eliminating the, the wear and tear on the individual who has to maintain it that's the number one successful FEC you walk into anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter the game package, the demographics, how big your bathrooms are, or your parking lot. If you walk into an arcade and it's taken care of, that's an individual doing that. And now you've got a segment in the industry. If it's not that caliber, his attention span is going to wane. He's not going to want to become an expert on that tech, that you know, pancake visuals don't mean shit to him at that point. Pardon my language, but the neatness, yeah. it doesn't matter if it doesn't go down the road. 
And that kind of gets to the labor conversation and labor constraints within the industry, which is a huge hedgewind. And and there's really two components to that. You just brought up another one that I hadn't thought of, Jim, which is the the technical service part. And I know operators are struggling to hire and retain technicians as part of the whole employee base. I want to kick this off to you, George, because you know, you were one of the earliest adopters of VR. You went in big with zero latency when it was first out. It was bleeding edge tech and have continued to trial probably more different types of VR attractions than anybody I know. And and recently have culled that library, that, that portfolio a little bit, but again, still doubling down with a new zero latency in Orlando. So I'd love to get your take on what the last five or six years has been like for you and what have you learned and how have you changed your view of VR? And then what do we need to do to continue to grow it? That's oh, a big question. Um, you, you know, the the labor side of it, we've actually, since COVID, I'm, I'm really pleased with where we've come. We have uh, probably a stickier workforce than we did before because we did a whole bunch of things at the same time, which is to love them and make sure that they show up for work every day and go from there. That being said, the technical side of it, as Jim pointed out and you mentioned, is the toughest element for, for what we're going to do. And so we think twice about is this going to cause us a problem in the parts and supply chain and and, and what's going to happen? To, but the biggest thing is I don't mind the VR for trying a bunch of things. And we looked at a bunch of things as a trial game right now. But in the future, I, I mentioned this a couple of times. I was watching Sunday morning the other day and they had Annie Leibovitz, who is kind of a funny person. If you know who she is, a real New Yorker. And she was talking about workforce problems that was there. And she said something that was really stinging, and I object to it on one side of it, but she has a point, which she said, look, if I'm an employer, you guys are talking about workplace enrichment and all these wonderful things about loving your employee and all the other kind of stuff. She says, that's crap. You know, just you want to abuse me with a few words? That's fine. Just pay me more. Um, (laughs) In between that and the fact that we are going to much more uh, uh, automated system, kiosk-based systems for how we get the customer to enriched in a shopping cart and using the software to to do that. And we're going to continue that. We're going to follow down the path of things that we can be assured are going to give us a return near term. If we, if we go into it with our eyes open that we say, we're going to have this for a year or two, and then that's it. Okay. Well, we can accept that and we'll do it with open eyes. But if as you know, to do it with Armando and we've had a couple of things. So those issues are real world things. They aren't of my making or anything else like that. It's just if you take something that in two and a half years goes from $140,000 Mercedes down to a $10,000 Yugo, it's not a good deal. And that's a real world thing that's happening with a lot of these things. So when you say we culled it, it's because labor number one, finance number two. And uh, you may be not just dealing with the cost of the equipment that you've had to decide that I'm going to you know, move this to the side. You may have a subscription that, that you're, you've vested into, and now you've got that that's living out ahead of that. You're never recouping that. You can't part out a subscription and say, okay, well, I'll use these parts over here and, until I can anymore. So there are stacked issues that come with this. George nailed it. It, it layers up from a technical and operations longevity. And then it ultimately is the question is, will we ever see the vintage VR section in a classic arcade? Will we see an Edison Brothers unit sitting in there? Right? Because that, that's my early seen, adaption. I think Rich Babbage had one sitting in his warehouse at the game exchange if you want to take a crack at that. Oh Jim, I'm sure I, I, I want to go over there and just to flip it off. Be like, hey, I, we, we still own the virtual reality 
uh, trailers that the, those things went out on. So, you know, <laughs> there you I'll go. Right? The blue and so, yellow so trailers VR, VR in the arcade space, it's not new. I can tell you, my first day on the job in the industry as an employee, going from a consumer of the experience to a producer of the experience, hey, go over there and work on that VR thing. Whoa, VR. And some of the same issues on that day in April of 1998 exist today we've changed the content not the problem so george you, you know you talked about depreciation and it's something that isn't talked enough about in i think in these forums that i'm involved in so what do you think it is that causing that rapid depreciation in the case of the hologate that you talked about like because the technology is still works like it's still applicable why would a device that was you know, a hundred grand. I know the prices trickle down over time with all of this stuff, but why would it depreciate? So it's only because somebody's decided they need to get rid of it in a fire sale. And, you know, Elon Musk just dropped the price of some Teslas by 20% in the used car market in California. All of a sudden, all the used test people are pissed off because their Teslas depreciated overnight because now you can buy a new one for 20% less than you could buy it on December 31st. Like what's behind that and how do we address that as an industry or is there anything we can do about it? Is it just the nature of the beast? We have to, operators, we're wussies, okay? We want the lowest cost up front. We want the, the depreciation to stay there. We don't want any problems with this kind of stuff. And we want you to make it automated so we don't have to explain it to our customers. Um, that's not quite realistic. VR is a new, relatively new and emerging category of things that are there. But to get the real experience, I think Jim said it back and forth. If the game doesn't justify you having a headset on, you shouldn't have a headset on. But now with the technology getting so much better and the cost dropping, that makes those acceptance of that kind of stuff much better. It is really the space and labor component that is different for this stuff. If, if you make the same amount of money, but it takes up two or three times the space, that's not so good. And if it takes up two or three times the space and I have to have a dedicated employee to do it, that complicates the issue that's more. So you have to think this through. And I think Ben has done a great job in developing, you know, a, a standalone, something that is rather durable, albeit heavier than crap to set up sometimes. So some of those 900 pounds weighs a lot. We've got it down to 200 and, and 290. So the, new, the newest version. That development has made all the difference in the world because now your cost of materials have gone down. We can buy this stuff more accepted. But then you're going to go out and get an IP that, that you say, I got to justify the extra 20% cost on it. It's a balancing act on all this stuff. But I really think it comes down to you got to have, if virtual reality is going to succeed more quickly, and it will eventually in one form or another, you got to keep the cost down so that it makes it easier to accept. Look, if, if it's something that was $100,000, and, and you're right in correcting me on that one, because Armando was kind enough when we bought Hologate that was there to make that work out. I can accept a, a change of $50,000 in depreciation in two years if I made $200,000 with it, give or take. If I make $100,000 with it, I blew it because all my other costs have eaten up every single penny of, of the investment. And then I'll think twice about, do I want to do this again? And I think, and I think that's something that manufacturers, but new companies coming into this industry, they don't understand the economics of how operators actually you know, compute the returns on investment. And I think we need to have a bigger discussion about that to educate a lot of these startup companies coming into the space. Sorry, Armando, go ahead. No, no, I think, I think that was a really good point. I think one of the things that, that George mentioned is really important is when you look at it from that business perspective, it's about the retained value that, you know, versus what it depreciates over a period of time. I think there is a little bit of a, you know, 
we're not representing Holligate anymore. We obviously sold hundreds of them. There was a phenomenal product. It was something that changed the market, right? At the time that it came out, right? That, that nobody can really deny. But I think some of what took place was that some operators, as we talked about earlier, are really good at some attractions like that. Some are not. Some that weren't bought them because others bought them and because they had done well with them. Because there are plenty of people that bought a Hollowgate and made two, $300,000 a year on it, right? And then there were some that couldn't make $10,000 a year on it. That disparity because of either how it was operated, the size of the market, the attraction mix, how it was. I mean, there's so many variables yeah. that can go into it. It's just not as simple as I can buy a big bass wheel and I can plug it into an arcade and I know it's always going to do X, Y, Z. But I also know I can't put 50 big bass wheels in an arcade, right? So you do need, you know, that diversity. And I think that that's one of those pieces that happens early in the market. And I think that's part of why we've seen a lot of the used market come down when it also gets coupled with COVID and some venue turnovers. But I think that that's why one of the big pieces I think a lot of game developers need to focus on in new products as you said, George, we've got to find ways to continue to keep the price reasonable, at least in relation to how much that unit can earn over that first, especially that first two years, right, of, of owning, I think is the most critical because that's no different than any other piece that you put in an arcade other than a few evergreen pieces. You, you've got to be able to find that. And we've got to not overcomplicate it, right? It's got to be simple to play. And we've got to not reinvent the wheel at every step either. It's got to be an experience that's intuitive because it is still new to so many people. And that is where I think sometimes with the ongoing fees and with licenses and with, with some of those pieces, it can become untenuous unless you are one of those really good operators at times, or you are going to be limited to only the really nice, compact, small form factor units like what Ben is able to make. He's done great in that market, right? He's cornered that type of a market. But when you start to get into the free roams and you start to get into the experientials, that's where the balancing act of the type of venue, the type of operator becomes so much more important into the success of that attraction. It's not something that anybody should just buy. Ben, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this free moment because I think the focus three is creating a proliferation now of these, what I'm calling compact free roam and and Armando, you're playing around now with laser tag and how is VR and laser tag going to merge. But getting back to these intermediate attractions, these like Hologate four player, Arcadia six player or whatever that require an attendant. Ben, you very early on, I think it was like 2015 or 2016 before Hologate launched. I remember seeing you with a product called Holocube, which was like a four player system and it was unattended. And I'm surprised that no one has taken and i've challenged all of these companies personally i was like why aren't you doing the research to try to figure out how to make your system unattended if you can have a two-player game that's unattended why can't you have a four-player game that's unattended and i want your opinion on why that hasn't happened is it possible and i want to know if anybody else has anything to say about that because i do believe that a hollow gate or a four-player system in a compact thing that could be run without an attendant probably changes the economics of that dramatically to where you don't see people dumping them for $10,000 and depreciating them like crazy. What's going on there, Ben? I do think it is a, a multifaceted issue. I mean, as, as we, we ultimately 
did not continue to move forward with that product, the Holocube, because we were getting asked for multiple things from operators. And one of them was, you know, we originally started out attended just like everybody else. It became clear that that was taking up too much labor. But as, as George has mentioned several times, labor and space, it's not just the labor, it's the real estate it was taking up. And so we kept being asked for, for several things. We needed to be smaller. We needed to be simpler. And we need it to not require so much labor. And so we, we, we said, okay, well, we'll make it smaller and um, we'll make it simpler and, and, and it'll be unattended. And we thought, well, we, you know, we've nailed that, but it, it turned out that we hadn't nailed it because it weighed 900 pounds, right, George? <laughs> like, there's, there's so many different layers and it's just like, well, can it not weigh 900 pounds and could it be shorter so we can get it through doors easier? And, oh, by the way, can we get rid of these moving parts and, Oh, by the way, they have to have the strap. Is there any way to not have a strap? Is there any way to just make it, like Jim said, just swipe and use it? And everybody can tell what to do. And then, you know, the it's kind of like, oh, it's fully automated. And it's like, well, is it fully automated when it breaks down every month and you've got to go cost and you, your, your texts are pulling your hair out? It's like what people want is like, it's not just two things or three things. It's actually 10 things. And, and, and so in addition, it's like, can it, is there any way? We, it can cost less. We need a better ROI. We, we can only charge so much for this premium experience. We don't want people to charge up their cards and they go into the arcade and play three things and their cards depleted and they don't feel like they got any value. And and so those are legitimate things that we're hearing. You know, so when we look at a product, and I totally agree with George, VR has so much more potential than just zombies. <laughs> it's it's so true. Um, but when we are looking at the, the product and trying to just get this product that we've been working on to check all 10 boxes and it's like well we got the price cut in half we got the all the moving parts uh, there those are gone and it only it weighs 290 pounds now and, and and you don't have to put on a strap and it has a recognizable ip trying to you know that whole thing of jim saying how do you get them into the game in the first place how do you get them over there and ip is one way to attract people in but we, we looked at so many of those things and 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 what people want is something that didn't cost them an arm and a leg isn't a massive risk that they can just get shipped to their place like a like a big bass wheel and plug it into the wall and it it does just work and it breaks down a few times a year not a few times a month and therefore retains its general value and earns well and pays itself off quickly and so you come back into the the potential George was talking about like the potential for VR to do much bigger things than be in an arcade game and the reason why we've stayed kind of in that arcade space is like we've been trying to perfect that form factor so that and get the price down so that as many people as possible, that'll hopefully be the cheapest, easiest way for them to have tried VR and have a great first experience. And then maybe that won't put them so off to try some more complicated stuff. Because as you start adding in multiplayer and then multiplayer automation and these different things, and you still want it to be low cost and you still want it to be super reliable, but now you got backpacks or you've got wireless systems. You've got people are running around with headsets that can drop on the floor as Armando was saying. And, and some of that stuff, it's, the more amazing that experience becomes is try to exploit the potential of VR, the more moving parts you have. Then you start coming into those variables Armando was talking about. Like good operators will put good protocols in place and train their employees and they'll be able to maybe hold it all together. But then operators who are maybe don't quite have enough resources or are stretched thin, they'll have the exact same equipment. And, and, and because they haven't been able to manage all the moving parts it'll be a giant mess and a constant frustration. And so I, I think VR has so much more potential 
but really the things we've been hearing about needing to reduce real estate, reduce complexity, reduce costs and decrease your maintenance. And that applies to any larger system. It just gets harder and harder to pull off the more complex the system gets. And and yeah, I, so I think that's one of the things that's, I'm not saying it won't come and that it can't come, but yeah. I, I think that's been one of the difficult things. I think the, the pieces that we talked about just there too, and I'm not trying to say that it's, it's only operator specific or, or operator fault by any means. It's the combination of thereof, right? And and it's not specific to VR, right? You can have some operators who are really good at managing their arcades of any type and some sure. don't. It's the same with the laser tag. Some people would add laser tag and they treat it like the redheaded stepchild in the back corner of their venue and not market it and then wonder why they weren't making money on it while other people are, are making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on it. It's the same thing. Like I can drive a car and I can have it run for 80,000 miles with minimal issues. This other person's got curb rash on all four of their tires and, you know, has hit five telephone poles. There is just a human element to anything in life, but those are the pieces that we at least have as manufacturers and suppliers, we're trying to minimize. But I think Ben, yeah. you did a great job of trying to talk about all those different nuanced pieces and every one of those factors creates an exponential opportunity for something to possibly not work as expected. And that's the piece where George, earlier you talked about it. We're still, we feel like we've been doing this for eight years or so <laughs> with VR amongst us, but we're still in its infancy with regards to the current gen Obviously, it's gone back, as Jim said, for 20 plus years now, but we are still in a relative infancy. I think part of the reason your original question, Bob, was, well, how can we not do a four player unattended? Well, because it only takes one of those four players to struggle with putting that headset on to have negatively affected the other three players still. That's part of the, part of the reason. So I think part of it is the world still needs more time to mature with VR beyond just the headsets and beyond just that before you can probably do that. I think that's part of that, that experience. Yeah. That's exactly, I think you nailed it right there, Mondo. I'm sorry to cut you off, Bob, but what is VR to the arcade? Is it an input-output device? Is it a controller? Is it the game? Is the headset the VR game? So VR is, to me, it still feels like a buzzword. It doesn't, it's not the activity that defines the device or the device defines the activity. So it's, someone said to me the other day, um, what the hell do I need to do? Uh, something along the lines of, I'm just going to strap a TV to my head and play air drums all day. And that's how they summarized a multi, multi-million dollar emerging technology is just, you know, strapping a monitor to my headset and a different input device. It's Look, not I, the I, experience. It's not the content. Is the headset, what comes first? The headset, the content, the controller? It's a real, I thought the industry is trying to figure it out. I think it's a really interesting point. And, you know, George, you, I think it was you or Jim, one of you in the beginning talked about, you know, Jim, we went from CRTs to rear projection to, LCD or flat panel, and now we're going to VR. And ultimately, VR is a display technology at its core, but the difference is it goes from 2D to 3D, right? And so all of those display technologies got increasingly immersive, you know, going from CRT to rear projection. George, I remember you installed some, when you were running Namco Cybertainment, you installed Alpine Racer and Prop Cycle in one of my 
laser tag, laser storm locations. And, you know, and you got this big screen right up there and you felt like you were really in it. To me, that was like one of the first versions of virtual reality in our industry. And, and ultimately all of these screens got bigger and bigger. And, and so, but the difference here is the user experience was the same. The user experience was the same. It wasn't, now we're moving into this new spatial computing era where we're inside of those environments instead of having a proscenium where we view them. And that we, that's going to require a whole new education of the entire world of how we interact with computing environments. And that is going to take some time. And I want it all to happen tomorrow. And I think you guys have, have helped me realize that it's coming along. It's come a long way, but it's, it still has a long way to go. I would say, Bob, that it is more than just like the, the, the ultimate culmination from the CRT through OLED and arriving at the ultimate, you know, display technology, because really it's not just the display on your face, but the fact that your hand movement, you can now dodge with your body, your body becomes the controller. You can actually duck. And so it actually puts your whole body inside the game, as opposed to just another way to display to your visual system images. And all those other things, all they ever did was increase uh, the quality of the visuals to your eyes. And it's just going to continue to get better tracking your body, tracking your where your body becomes the controller. And it's really just a whole new human machine interface that incorporates, um, you know, this huge step up in the visual display, but also just the whole human machine interface. And it will get to the point where that interface fades away and you can interact directly with those environments with very little things. It, it's just a matter of clearing away so much of the friction and figuring out a way how to make it where it can operate in the real world under real conditions with real real estate prices and real labor prices. We just got to continue to solve those problems. And I think you asked earlier, whose responsibility is that? Is that do we put it on the operators and say, well, you need to put padding everywhere? Or is it on the manufacturers to step up and make sure it's robust? And I think the answer is if you want to be involved in cutting edge technology, that's not all the kinks have not been worked out. It's going to take a little bit on both sides. I think the manufacturers need to be doing everything we can to solve every known issue we can that is within our power to solve. And we need to be listening. The product cycle has got to be shorter. We've got to be listening and hearing this is causing a great amount of pain and doing as much as we can in the next iteration to solve those things. I would hope that the people who've put their faith and trust and stepped out like George did and took risks and, and, and were early adopters would see that that good faith hasn't been squandered, that the, the manufacturers are, are hearing, seeing the pain, iterating, fixing, getting better. Of course, it won't all be fixed. And so there will still be some stuff that has to be figured out on the operator side. But I would hope as we continue to move forward, that'll continue to go down and, and it'll become simpler and simpler. I, I think you, you're hitting the right point. It's a development cycle that's there. I, I remember when I came on board with, with Namco, Messiah Nakamura once said to me, he said, look at the, the, the child that goes onto a kiddie ride and gets onto the horse that bucks you up and down is virtually feeling themselves to be a cowboy. And I remember growing up as a cow playing cowboy and Indians with sticks and everything. We were virtually playing cowboys and Indians. It's as simple as saying you're trying to do something with your imagination. The, the cycle, though, has been curious to me over the years because when we get together, whether it's uh, at educational forums or we write up about it, most often a lot of these things seem to be you only become aware of them when somebody spends an absurd amount of money for an IP, a Disney, a Microsoft, or whatever the case would be, to develop something and it gets splashy and they put it into a place in Hollywood or New York City and it blows up. A few years down the road, 
that money's been squandered and it hurts. The problem in the inflection cycle, I think that, that developers are in right now is be careful right now, because if you don't get it right for enough mass acceptance of the VR at a price that can make this financially viable for us, you're going to lose some of the development cycle and goodwill that still exists on this one that hasn't quite panned out, if you know what I mean. I think that's a great place to put a pin in it, because I think there's a whole nother webinar I want to have, because we didn't even really touch on the free roam and the laser tag stuff and and everything coming. So the Focus 3 has really, um, and, and HTC's LBSS, location-based software suite, has enabled people, developers, to create free roam attractions that are now getting way more cost-effective. Zero latency has gone from, you know, $750,000 in Gen 1, you know, in 2016, down to under $200,000, I think now for their solution. And a lot of that is to do with the technology getting better and the Focus 3 headset. George, I want to ask you, because you've, you know, deployed that and you've been through Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3 with them. And so how do you see the Focus 3 working and how do you see free roam like developing because we're seeing you know zero latency i think is still at the top end of those experiences both quality and and cost but you're starting to see things like hero zone and phenomena and spree and these other companies coming with these smaller free roam that are 600 800 a thousand square feet for six eight ten players and they're not charging you know you're not going to get 30 40 50 dollars in experience like you can with zero latency how do you view the free roam market developing now that the technology seems to have solidified and hardened with Focus 3, and what would you like to see happen? Oddly enough, you, you gave the answer there. The free roam stuff and, and virtually anything is you got to get it down to 100 bucks a square foot. You get it down to 100 bucks a square foot and it can survive, we have a chance for making it work if it's a decent experience. If it goes much above 100 bucks, it's too expensive on the investment side and the labor side. If it goes much below that, that's great if you have enough library and enough turnover to make this work. I don't care if it's a single player station or whatever that, that's there. If my investment is so out of bounds on this one, I got a problem. But if the experience delivery is there, especially in, in Armando and I down in Florida, the zero latency we put in could just as easily have been something that he was working on that's there that that's coming to fruition right now because we need something that excites people that when they come down to, especially in Orlando, they don't see on their couch. It's not through a home-based system. It's something that's really different. And that's what has always been my impetus for doing this one. Same thing for laser tag. If I go up a multi-level site or I go through th some things and I have a well-designed laser tag, it's an experience that people will remember. And I get a chance of making money on it for a while to come. So it's, it's that, that real-life balance between getting a return, operating costs, that's there. But most importantly, it's got to be an experience that people really enjoy. That's something that's not as easily duplicated. And if we, we do that well, and we have to do our work as operators, what I, I said at the beginning is the biggest challenge we've had to find is we have to educate our consumer as to what they're about to see and get it down to a succinct message, handing them out a card about what you're about to experience right now and how do you go about all these things. That's okay. And then we can charge a buck a minute to play it. Armando, what's, you've been in the laser tag industry a long time. I know you're in the center of an ecosystem of laser tag providers. So, you know, there's probably a little bit of sensitivity around this question, but I'll ask it anyway, is how do you see VR impacting the laser tag business now that 
the tech stack has gotten to the point where it feels like it's it's deployable and affordable? Yeah, I think the biggest piece that you know, a lot of people like to just immediately draw that comparison of laser tag to VR. And a lot of people have thrown that in marketing. And even though we're the laser tag, you know, largest laser tag arena builders, even with our limitless VR, we're intentionally not really forcing that direct comparison. Because one thing that laser tag still does, nobody else has been able to do is it's sheerly volume and capacity, right? I can play a 40 player laser tag game and I can cycle that game four times an hour every 15 minutes at eight bucks a pop to, to 12 bucks a pop, depending on my market. And there's, that means I can host multiple birthday parties, entire corporate events, et cetera, right? There's not been a VR attraction yet that is able to meet that volume. I think people want to make that direct comparison because I get to go shoot people, right? Like, and they just draw that direct comparison, but yeah. you know, from an operator's perspective and the dollars that they can make, in the space that it takes up, they, they've not found parity yet. I think that's the big piece that we'll see over time. George really hit it on the on the head, like our limitless VR, which is what he was alluding to or alluding to. Like we got it basically at hundred dollars a square foot, right? For an eight player system, roughly twenty by forty is just under eighty thousand dollars. Like it, it was exactly that target that we were shooting for, because we feel like that is that right mix. And what you're going to see, I think, is because it is still an eight-player attraction at that size, it is going to be what I called more of that mini attraction earlier, right? You're going to see some venues that are going to do laser tag still with bowling as more of their anchor attractions or with go-karts, and then Limitless becomes one of their components. We now do have a 16-player version that takes up a bit more space. That one might get to a size and a capacity that somebody can do where it's more of an anchor. Now you start to have that conversation a little bit. I still just don't think it's there yet because you don't have that throughput and capacity standpoint yet. What's missing from the tech stack that we need to do to be able, or, or the experience stack to be able to create that density of users in a space? Like you can do yeah. one player per 100 square foot in laser tag, you know, so in a 2,000 square foot arena, 20 players, 4,000 square foot arena, 40 players. Yeah. What's missing that's stopping us from doing that in VR now? The onboarding and offboarding process with VR is still more cumbersome than putting on a laser tag vest. It's simply that. If you told me I had infinite time to brief invest, I can right now with our tech stack, with the Focus 3, with Limitless, I can throw 25, 30 people in a game without an issue, right? I can do that now and we can get the co-location can work. The, the, the experience can work, all the tracking can work. We've cracked that nut. It becomes an onboarding and offboarding pace in the amount of staff you're gonna need to be able to do it because it's just so much simpler and intuitive to throw a vest over your head, buckle in the front, pick up your phaser and go shoot everything that glows, right? Yeah. Laser tag yeah. still has that simplicity that we just don't have yet. We're trying to find ways to minimize it using our experience in laser tag to bring to the limitless world using tricks where, you know, I think you were one of the people that were commenting on it where it's like, hey, as you get your headset on and you go out into the space, you go into a mini shooting gallery game. So you lose that that for one or two minutes. If you were the first person that it took us to get the other seven or other 15 in, 
you don't feel like your time was wasted. You were already in the environment to an extent, yeah. but beyond 16, that trick doesn't work yet. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that's what it is. It's just, it's the yeah. speed of onboarding and offboarding is not quite there. And I don't, it'll take a little bit before it gets there. I think it, it might take consumer adoption of VR where people are familiar with it. And they say, Oh yeah, I've done this before. I take the headset, put it on and go. And, and so that just might take some time. Yeah. Fair enough. Great, great answer. Look, I just want to thank everybody. Last question. Is VR the future of this industry? Are we, it sounds like you guys are pretty bullish on it, but do you really think that VR is here to stay now this time? Because we've, you know, it's come and go over the decades, as you've said. That second question is better. That second question is better. Yeah. First question where you're like, is it here to take over? I feel as little here to stay. We are here to stay within our industry. Let's stay with that. Here to stay as long as we continue to have great partners like HTC continue to evolve with their product. Yes, but I'm not trying not to ruffle any feathers with this. But like we just saw Microsoft shut down all of their XR divisions. We've seen HP back out of some of their H, you know, VR and backpack PC components. That we can't control that. Right. Yeah. So as long as we continue to have a partner like ACC that's going to invest in it, then I know people like myself and people like Ben will continue to work to create amazing experiences for people like George and Jim. So it's here to stay. It won't take over because I think that there's still so much value in some of the other tactile experiences that you can have with other attractions. Yeah, I, I, I was just down at a Dave and Buster's yesterday. How long have video game has been here. I mean, decades and decades and decades. And there were people playing skee-ball with their kids and skee-ball didn't go away when the original arcade machines showed up. And there's always going to be a mix. But I think some of those early Valiant efforts to bring VR to the location-based entertainment space uh, 20 years ago, Valiant as they were, the core technology that HTC is you know, now producing on a mass scale was just not there. And now it is there. And I don't think that's ever going back in the bottle. And I think HTC's efforts and and their iteration cycle, it hasn't been like, oh, we'll improve this every four years. It's been very quick. It's been very rapid, which has kept us on our toes in trying to harden that and make sure that we're constantly upgrading what we're doing. I think that core base, that base where the technology um, is just being mass produced and is available at relatively low costs. I don't think that's ever going back in the bottle. And of course, if that core technology is there, it's such, there's so much potential as George was speaking to, and people are going to keep figuring out ways to unlock that potential and get rid of the brain damage and simplify and harden. And as the populace becomes more and more familiar with both the technology and the hardware, you know, it's just going to get simpler and simpler and those barriers are going to fall. And I don't think it's going to take over everything, but it's, I think it's going to remain apart for a very, very long time and for the foreseeable future. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you all for joining um, on behalf of HTC. I do have one last thing I want to do, George, there's, um, you, you remember, was it Sesame Street? One of these things does not belong here. Remember that game? Absolutely. And, and so there's one thing that's glaringly lacking amongst this group that you all have in common, except one of you being a VR bobble winner. George, I tried to find you at IAPA on the end of the day. I think you've flown the coop. <laughs> um, and so I reserve these for people who have done amazing work and really pushed the forefront of virtual reality in the industry. And, and George, I can't think of anybody who's done more 
um, who's been more supportive of early manufacturers, who's been an early adopter and, and giving feedback to companies to, and your generosity of, of, of spirit and information than you have brought to our industry. And so I'd like to present you, I'll bring this in Vegas, hopefully you'll be there uh, wrapped up for you. But George Smith, round of applause from, from everybody for George Smith. Thank you so much. Latest yeah, man. Absolutely. Welcome to, the <laughs> Welcome to the club, George. Thank you yeah, so yeah. much. Every now and then you get to just walk by and smack Bob on the head and he just goes, uh, do it again. I, 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 I don't want to do that with just the bobblehead though. So that's, 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 practicality of VR as we tackle multiple vertical markets and how VR is, you know, entering and making a difference in all of these different ways we apply technology in the world. So um, thanks for joining. Thanks, guys.